All right. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to uh, that passage from 1 Samuel 7. Uh, if you would, we do a little stage cleaning uh, up here. You need this? 1 Samuel 7. If you've got a worship guide, you can uh, open it to the appropriate page. We're going to consider the chapter that Stephen uh, just had us read uh, together, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. In just a moment, one of the uh, questions many of us get the privilege of uh, asking and answering with our lives is, uh, what do you do with excess? Like when you have some leftovers, whether it's food or uh, time or money, energy, you know, whatever, uh, are we going to hoard that? Or are we going to steward it for the sake of others? And uh, it's a question that we get to ask and answer consistently. What's well, a, a question that you are asking and answering as a church? One of the things we have an excess of at Christ Fellowship is quality leaders. And one of the ways you steward the excess of quality leaders that we have is by sending them around the world to be a blessing and encouragement to other people. So thank you for that. Sarah and I were in Seattle last weekend, and we got to lead a marriage retreat, and I got to preach for a buddy of mine that's been pastoring for six years in Seattle, and uh, he's uh, up until six months ago been the only pastor of a congregation of about 200 people. And so you loaned me out to be a blessing uh, to them. You loaned your resources because I got to take them uh, on a date night and provide food for them, and uh, we paid for it with money that you have given, so thank you. You are a blessing to the church in Seattle. You're a blessing to the people of Sao Tome this morning by loaning Pastor Hugh to travel around the world and uh, serve and encourage. So we want to be the kind of church that's stewarding our excess to be a blessing to other people. So thanks for doing that. Let's pray uh, for them and for us this morning. <clears throat> Father, we bow thanking you that in your good kindness to us, we do have excess. We have excess uh, resources. We have excess time, energy, emotion. And uh, we recognize the propensity of our heart is to want to uh, hoard that. And uh, we pray that you would pry our hands off of our excess and teach us to, uh, to give it for the betterment of people, for the sake of others around the world. We thank you for the uh, good work that you're doing in strengthening churches beyond Greenville as a result of the faithfulness of this congregation. We do pray for our brother Hugh this morning, for Jordan as they travel. Would you get them to Sao Tome uh, safely? healthily? Would you use these brothers this week to teach truth to pastors that don't have access to quality teaching consistently? We pray for Pastor Rod and Eric as they labor in the villages of Uganda this morning. Pray for Pastor David as he is strengthening those churches, and we pray that the work they do over the coming month would be a blessing to the people of Uganda. Pray for Philip and Brittany this morning as they strengthen the church in California. Pray that you would use him to speak your word clearly to that young congregation and that you would bring health. And we just thank you for the joy that it is to be a part of your work around the world. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> aging isn't fun. I'm not fully there yet, but um, it's, uh, it's no good. And particularly um, aging, if you're walking with those who uh, have uh, memory issues or struggling, uh, uh, to retain information, dementia, and the like. Memory informs our emotions. It informs how we make sense and process life. And it's really hard to experience life if you can't remember anything. And it's really hard to even know how to give care to other people. We're not talking about the kind of like, where did I put my car keys kind of memory. But we're talking about huge life-altering, like what's your name kind of memory. When that goes, so goes our ability to interact and make sense with the world. Our passage this morning from 1 Samuel is about memory. 
and the value of memory among the people of God. In the same way that a memory informs our human existence in this world, so too memory is a key to Christian discipleship. It is a mark of maturity. We're going to build a case this morning. I'm going to build two sentences for you. So uh, I'm kind of masking my four points. I have four points again, but they're going to be masked among two sentences that we're going to build a case for together. And we're going to get a running start uh, in in verse 1. I want you to notice that the end of chapter 6, we, uh, Hugh, last week, we're kind of playing hot potato game with the ark. Uh, That's really what all of chapter, who's going to take it? The presence of God's kind of wreaking havoc uh, wherever it goes. And the passage ends, just kind of let your eyes uh, glance back in, in verse 21 of chapter 6. Uh, the Philistines, they return the ark of God and they, you know, come down and get it. Who's going who's gonna to take this thing? Here, you can have it, so they say. And then in verse 1, uh, notice a common uh, refrain in these chapters is that often verse 1 of the next chapter is actually best married with what came before it. And your editors helps you with your Bible. Many of them have a clear break between verses 1 and 2 because in many ways, verse 1 of chapter 7 is a summary of chapter 6 and not the start of verse 1. They bring the ark to Abinadab's house. Now, after all this chaos, we have to ask the question, like, what short straw did this dude draw to get the ark? I mean, who's bringing a tumor-bringing ark to their house, who's in their right mind going to put it in their house after the destruction is done to the city. And then we got this guy, this son, who's going to take care of the ark. Talk about a big boy job there. Let's stick it in this dude's house and let's assign somebody to care for it, uh, to oversee what is going to happen. It seems a bit kind of out of sight, out of mind. Like, let's just, let's just put this thing up on the hill in hopes that the chaos will stop. And then we have a timestamp that marks our transition into verse 2, and this timestamp is more important than you might think. Twenty years pass in verse 2 since the ark was taken and put on the hill, and the whole house of Israel, I'm reading the end of verse 2, longed for the Lord. Now, I'm going to do this morning three, th- three times something that I don't really love to do, which is uh, kind of nuance language to the original language. It's not often necessary, but I think it's actually helpful here. Uh, our English translations with the end of verse 2, the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. The language here is actually lamented for the Lord. And while it's a wooden translation to get that into English, I think it's actually a more visual picture for us of what's taking place here. They're lamenting for the Lord. This would be the the picture of a funeral, uh, the picture in the Old Testament that's accompanied by sackcloth and ashes. This is the kind of lament that Job experiences after his life falls apart. And here, it's not just singular person, but the the whole house, the, the people of God lament for the Lord. Now, we've got to supply a few things that are not in the text in verse 2. At least ask and attempt to answer questions like, what what are they lamenting here? Maybe they're lamenting the the presence of God. Maybe they're lamenting, probably, the, the power of God, the display of God. Maybe they're missing the blessing that accompanies God's power. We're not, the text doesn't tell us. A more difficult question, actually, is perhaps, why are they lamenting? I mean, it could be that they're merely lamenting the outward experience of God's blessing. Wasn't it great when God showed off his power, like back at Jericho? Maybe they genuinely wanted God. 
Maybe they long for a relationship with God for his nearness. The motive is at least implied at the start of verse 3, when Samuel speaks and says, if you are returning to the Lord. So the implication from verse 3 is that their lament, that they're feeling a broken relationship with God. They're grieved by the distance they have from God. They feel some sense of remorse of what has transpired by their national sin. And so let's start there. Let's start just with the phrase genuine remorse. This is the, the foundation of our text. This is what verse 2 introduces. Now, admittedly, we don't know if it's genuine yet, but we see an experience of remorse, of brokenness, of lament, of longing. We can start by, even with this first idea, make a simplistic observation from verse 2, and that is this. Gen genuine remorse takes time. Notice the timestamp. I said that was more important than you might think. We've got 20 years having passed here before we get any mention of uh, longing, any mention of missing God, any mention of remorse. I, Sarah and I travel a good bit uh, more these days. And when one of you, you know, goes out of town, uh, it takes a, you know, first couple of hours, you're like, oh, it's, you know, flexible. I got, you know, I can, I can go through the drive-thru whenever I want to, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, but then it's like, pretty sure I'm like, I kind of miss her. <laughs> like, this kind of stinks. This, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. In a good relationship, you miss the other person quickly. Don't even have to be doing a lot, but it's just, it's better when we're together. We'd like to think that this is the default position with humans and God, but I think our text this morning demonstrates that for many people and at many times, it, it just takes time to miss God. We don't start there. And in fact, I would go maybe one step further and say, you actually have to cultivate maturity to miss God. That it's actually a mark of maturity to very quickly lament God's distance to feel brokenness for our sin. Our starting place is to feel comfortable with his absence, to grow comfortable with our sin, and not to notice when things are not right. So a mark of Christian maturity then is how long does it take you to miss God? And, and friends, just a note of hope too. Uh, this is also encouragement for us as we pray for those uh, in our circle of influence that, that aren't walking faithfully with the Lord. Like to not lose heart. 20 years is a long time. This timestamp reminds us, wouldn't it be nice if those we loved, those who were playing with sinful choices, would experience the brokenness of their relationship with God very quickly, that they would hit bottom sooner and cry out to God? But it just takes time for them to miss God as well. It should, this should motivate our prayer and pursuit. Don't lose heart. God is active in these timestamps. So they, they lament God which then leads to the, the second part of this compound sentence. Genu genuine remorse produces tangible repentance. Genuine remorse produces tangible repentance. Verse 3, Samuel tells them, if you are returning to the Lord, so he's supplying a bit of motive for them, if you're doing it with all your heart, then get rid of your foreign gods and your Asherahs that are among you, set your hearts on the Lord, and worship him only. He will rescue you from the Philistines. So how do you know if genuine, if this is genuine lament? Samuel answers the question. Now, uh, we haven't heard from Samuel for three chapters thus far. He hasn't spoken since uh, 1 Samuel 3. 
And if you remember back there, he was the God-appointed mouthpiece for people. And actually, his voice was an indication God's still with you. God's still speaking. God's still active. So in some ways, while God's been maneuvering in these three chapters that we've seen, uh, we haven't seen clear direction or guidance from God until we, we get here. His voice is a reminder, Samuel's voice is a reminder that God is still with his people. And this is likely, verse 3 is probably a summary of the kinds of things that Samuel said to them. This is the consistent voice. He calls them to account. He says, if this is genuine, godly lament, then it's going to do more than produce mere sadness or superficial desire for blessing. It's going to be accompanied by some things. Three things he says. Get rid of your foreign gods. Then positively set your hearts on the Lord and worship him only. This uh, verse three is, is a passage, is a, a verse that feels right at home in the New Testament text, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, you're like, it feels like there was one God back then, a new God here, one voice here. And obviously some things change, no doubt. But in places like this, we see continuity more than we see discontinuity. This passage of putting off some things and then putting on some things informs places like Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. But now that you have come to know Christ, assuming you've heard about him and were taught about him as the truth of Jesus, take off your former way of life, the old self that's been corrupted by deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and in purity and truth. First, put off the worship of false gods. How do you know if the remorse is genuine? There's tangible repentance in renouncing the false gods. Here the mention, uh, most commentators say you got the, the male kind of lowercase god and then asherahs would be uh, uh, denoting uh, 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 goddesses of sexual, uh, uh, god, goddesses that, that were thought to grant the ability to have children. So you got this kind of male-female uh, pairing here. It says take off the worship whatever false gods that you are worshiping, however you think they are helping you. Called to get rid of the things that are pulling their hearts away from the worship of the true God. And then positively, set your hearts on the Lord and worship him. This makes sense. Two loves can't coexist in the human heart. Jesus says so much. So in order for the love of God to reign supreme, we must rid our hearts of rival loves. This is the work that the great reformer Martin Luther began his 95 thesis with. The whole, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ has willed that the entire life of the Christian should be one of repentance. This is how the 95 thesis starts. Now that seems like, man, that's a bleak prospect. Luther's point isn't meant to be a Debbie Downer. It's that the way Christians make progress through life is ongoing repentance. It's the active, consistent, habitual practice of putting away that which pulls our hearts away from worship, from worship of the true and living God to increasingly be aware of those things that pull our hearts away from the love of God. And then positively, set your heart on the Lord and worship him only. Again, the language here is firmly at home in the New Testament. Paul writes in Colossians 3, so if you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things that are above. 
Here's another um, language in, in the passage. Set your minds. The, the, the language more woodenly but helpfully is affix your minds. So th- th- that's got more resonance, doesn't it, than lament and longing. Uh, affix your minds. So it's not just like a momentary think about, but, it, but it's like permanently place that thing there. A long-standing positioning. Gorilla glue your minds, we might say. Set, fix them there. So what keeps the false worship out when, when, when it's gone? It's gorilla gluing your mind to the things of the Lord. Affixing your thoughts to him. And what happens, what happens next in the text? We're not told what the people do so much in verses 5 and following as what God does. Notice the text then moves to a battle scene. Samuel says in verse 5, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. So they gathered there, they drew water, and they poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day, and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judges the Israelites at Mizpah. The Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah. Their rulers marched up towards Israel. When Israel heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And the Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. Then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. And the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to the place below Bethgar. Another battle scene. And we've seen that uh, in the foregoing uh, story that the outcome is not, uh, is not a foregone conclusion here. Uh, you're meant to hold up 1 Samuel 7 and compare it to 1 Samuel 4. You remember the last battle scene that we encountered? The last time this happened, they played God like a mascot. Go get the ark, go fetch the ark for us, and surely God will fight for us. And God was having none of it. He allowed uh, uh, them to, to be defeated. He's not going to be mocked. And now, some 20 years later, the same scene plays out. But notice there's some differences in our passage. 1 Samuel 4, go get the ark and let it help us. Notice what happens here in our passage. They pray to the Lord and say, let him help us. There's a distinct difference in the posture of these people at this place. Let this rabbit's foot help us. Or let God defend us. They cry out to God. They implore him for help. Something they presumably did not do in 1 Samuel 4. And verse 10 shows that it's the Lord who acts on their behalf. I mean, their battle plan's pitiful. They're offering sacrifices at the time. The army is coming. They're seemingly ill-prepared to defeat the Philistines. And in a common war pattern, it's the Lord who brings confusion to the enemy. He thunders from heaven. I'm not told exactly what happens there, but surely he brings confusion. Um, the text literally says, he humbled the Philistines before them. It wasn't the Israelites that humbled the Philistines by defeating them in battle, but he humbled the Philistines by thundering from heaven, and then they're just all confused. They're defeated by God, and then they lose to Israel. 
So genuine repentance, I'm sorry, genuine remorse produces tangible repentance. Backside of that, God renews his promises. God, God renews his promise. He shows up again to fight on behalf of his people. He keeps his commitment to them. He doesn't bail on this. The Lord is faithful to renew his love for them. And if you look for it, there's a chapter uh, like this, like 1 Samuel 7, in almost all of the first 20 books of the Old Testament. There's a chapter where things are spiraling out of control. The people repent and return to the Lord. And then God is like just super kind to like keep his promise and to care for them, even though they've consistently blown it. One of the high water marks of this, you know, backtracking the story a bit, would be the Joshua 8 scene. And, and interesting, I don't think it's an accident. It occurs at almost the exact same place in the book. In Joshua 8, here, 1 Samuel 7, we see them take the land. Uh, we have the battle of Jericho that's playing out. And then I'll read from Joshua 8, verses 30 to 35, just to allow you to see the parallel. At that time, Joshua built an altar on the mountain to the Lord, the God of Israel. Just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones in which no iron tool had been used. They offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings. And there on the stones, Joshua copied the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the Israelites. All Israel, resident alien and citizen alike, with elders, officers, and judges, stood on either side of the Ark of the Lord's covenant, facing the Levitical priest who carried it. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded earlier concerning blessing the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read aloud the words of the law, the blessings as well as the curses, all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read before the whole of Israel, including the women, the dependents, the resident aliens who live among them. Then at the end of this, they say... Uh, We'll do it. We'll keep our end of the promise. If you look in Joshua 8, most likely your uh, Bible is going to have a header that says a covenant renewal ceremony. They say we're going to uphold our end of the bargain, and God says I'm going to be faithful to my promises. Now, we'd be unwise, and the language here, uh, be unwise to think of renewal akin to what, uh, what you might see in like a, a, a marriage vow renewal ceremony. Because often, like, that's on the backside of a breakdown in the marriage relationship, where the couple, like, renews their vows to one another in the sense the implication is we've blown it and we're calling these promises back to mind. It's not what's happening in the Bible. The only people in the Bible that have blown it are the Israelites, the, the, the people on the other end of the covenant. God isn't renewing his broken vows. But the language of renewal is helpful. God's bringing them back to the surface. He's, he's renewing the consistency of his commitment to the people. He's telling them by fighting for them, by thundering from heaven, I've not given up on you. He's still with them, even after all this time and all this failure. Quick note of hope, isn't it, for you and I? Were you like God? Think of how quickly you would have been justified in writing people off. Think of how quickly you do that in human relationships. So the phrase goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. 
someone breaks their promises to you over and over again, you just give up. You cut them off. Boundaries, right? Not God. Not in 1 Samuel 7. And praise God, not for you and I either. God holds us fast. He is faithful to his promises. Even friends, when we are not. Which then leads to the final conclusion, verse 12. So God renews his promise, and then what, what do the people do? So we've got this uh, kind of contrast. God renews, I'm, I'm faithful, I'm going to fight for you. Verse 12, Samuel took a stone, set it uh, upright between Mizpah and Shin. They named it Ebenezer, explaining, the Lord has helped us up to this point. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines for all of Samuel's life. Notice the parallels we read those verses between Joshua 8. The covenant is renewed, and the people mark that renewal with a tangible symbol of remembrance. Uh, it's a bit of an odd deal, isn't it? I mean, they here take a rock and give it a name. I mean, a, a, a common practice for little kiddos, right? Um, so my son's name is Fuller Russell Rogers, okay? Um, named after the, the gentleman that, that raised my, my dad. And uh, Fuller Russell Rogers, enter, he's three. He introduces himself as Fuller Russell Rogers. You ask him what his name is, Fuller Russell Rogers. Well, this is his bunny. And guess what Bunny's name is? Bunny Russell Rogers, okay? <laughs> Bunny Russell Rogers is Fuller Russell Rogers' best friend. It is common for three-year-olds to give inanimate objects name and names and endow them with certain characteristics. This gives comfort. It gives peace. It gives joy to my three-year-old. And we'd like to think that we outgrow those tendencies as we age. And praise God, most of you did not come this morning with Fuller Russell Rogerses. However, I think we should give caution in these passages to this significant role that tangible symbols play in reminding us of the faithfulness of God. Here they take a rock and they give it a name. Ebenezer, so they say. It's common practice in the Old Testament. Names are filled with meaning. Think back in 1 Samuel 4. Um, uh, uh, here we have Eli's daughter. And the ark gets taken away and she, she gives her son a name. It's positive, uh, negatively, Ichabod, she says. Why? Because the glory has departed. Names are endowed with meaning. And so they take a rock and they give it a name. The Lord has helped us up to this point, they say. Third place is helpful. Ebenezer. Eben, uh, uh, the Hebrew word for rock, paired with azer, uh, the, the word for help. Any of you that have uh, done studies in biblical fem femininity, you know that this language is uh, actually in the early chapters of our Bible when Eve is introduced as a helper to Adam. She's an azer to him. Here's a, a rock of help, a helping rock. But it's interesting to note that it's not merely just this, like, let's invent a term, but we've actually encountered Ebenezer already. Back in 1 Samuel 4, verse 1, they went out to meet the Philistines in battle, and they encamped at Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in another place. 
This is the place where they were defeated by the Israelites. And now on the other side of this defeat, they raise up an Ebenezer that reminds them of Ebenezer, that the Lord was our help. And here again, a more wooden translation of this is stickier in my mind. Verse 12, the wooden translation of this is, hitherto the Lord has helped. Hitherto the Lord has helped. The Lord has helped us up to this point, our English Bibles say. There's a lot of theology baked into hitherto, isn't there? The Lord has helped us thus far. This hitherto recounts all the stories from the Pentateuch, all the places where God showed up and was a help to his people. And it also, Ebenezer, recounts places like 1 Samuel 4, where it surely did not look like the Lord was their help. But perhaps in places like 1 Samuel 4, the Lord was their help in exposing their sin and allowing them to be routed such that 20 years later, they would long for the Lord. The Lord was helping them too there. And so they wanted a marker to help them remember. They didn't want to forget. They wanted to call to mind consistently that the Lord has been our help up to this point. Friends, if you are here this morning and you are in Christ, verse 12 is like your life verse. The Lord has been your help too. The Lord has been your help. If you're alive, the Lord has helped you up to this point. You might not be aware of it. It might not seem like it. Life may have felt more like 1 Samuel 4 than it does the deliverance through the Red Sea. But the Lord has been your help. Some of the most important moments of the Lord's help may be the times when we are least aware of his activity. God's help is really missable. Therefore, last idea. God renews his promises, and we remember his help. God renews his promises, and we train ourselves to remember his help. You, friends, me, we need to be, verse 12, kinds of people. In moments of clarity, we need to, to, to raise Ebenezer's that call our minds back to the helpfulness of God. This thought sent me down a rabbit hole of Google this weekend. I could nerd out for 10 minutes here on the studies of, of dementia care for patients and the, the role of uh, physical objects and calling their minds back to concrete memories. There's something about physical tangibility that reminds us of things that we often can't see. And God's help is very missable. So you're going to need some Ebenezer's. You're going to need some rocks of help that snap you out of forgetfulness. Let me give you three real quick this morning as we close. Three Ebenezers. Um, one would be this, the local church. The local church is a tangible reminder, the weekly gathering of the people of God is a tangible reminder of God's saving activity and his kindness in your life. Um, really, like, if, you, if you're honest with, like, there should be no, like, begging and prodding to come to church. Like, this is a joy and a gift because it, it holds up every week in Ebenezer. Like, the Lord has been our help. Praise God. And some weeks, you're going to be really mindful of that in your own life. 
Like you're gonna have a real tangible sense of the Lord has been my help this week. But one of the gifts of the local church is that more often than not, you're gonna look around and see a whole lot of people that you love and care for and remember the Lord has been their help, right? What a cool gift to stand and sing with a community of people that the Lord has helped. You get to hear stories and remember that the Lord, our God, has helped us thus far. Secondly, your Bible. The local church, secondly, your Bible. And here I mean both your Bible itself and significant verses that the Lord has used at important times in your life. In my estimation, uh, it's a worthy argument. Don't tell Fuller I'm dropping Bunny Russell Rogers. All right, that was, uh, that was a big mistake. Um, I think this is a valid apologetic for physical print copies of the Bible. Uh, and I'm not bashing on you if you're scrolling this morning, not any of that. But I do think there is something significant in holding a copy of God's word in your hands. In my estimation, there's something significant to pages that are marked up, to crinkled pages with your tears. It, it marks, right? It marks God's activity in our lives. It reminds us at these critical moments, like if you're like me, you can sit down with a Bible that you've been with for a while and you can like remember where the psalm sits on the, on the page, right? You, you can remember the verse. Some of you have hand-me-down Bibles that like you, you have a, in the margin something that a parent has written or a grandparent has written and it calls your minds to God's faithfulness. We have some new friends in our church uh, that are doing a Bible binding company, right? And they're, they're taking old Bibles that are falling apart and they're repackaging them, kind of the stated motto is to help people treasure God's word. There's something about these notes, these texts that remind us of critical moments in our lives. When we hold the pages and we reread the words, we remember God has helped me thus far. And then lastly, a rock. And um, I, I don't mean a rock. I mean, maybe I mean a rock. Um, but I think it is worth considering physical objects that remind you of God's faithfulness and help up to this point in your life. Don't, don't worry. Don't tweet me, right? Like, I'm not suggesting icons that we worship. We're not running down that, that road. Obviously, the Lord has told them to renounce these false objects of worship to the false gods. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting, do you have visual reminders in your space that remind you that God has been your help? I've got a picture in my study of me with this uh, inner city brother in Toronto named Abraham. I was uh, 22, had a hookah shell necklace on. It's really cool. Some umbros, right? Uh, the picture was taken on the last day. I'd spent eight weeks with Abraham, and we had become friends. I'd shared the gospel with him, and I'd seen the Lord uh, bring change in Abraham's life. And we're getting on the bus to head out of uh, downtown Toronto, and a friend takes a picture with me. And I was riding that bus back. We had a 45-minute ride that day, as I remember. And it was the first time that I had this thought, like, huh, like, God can use me to actually help somebody. And I know you guys are all more mature than I am, but at 21, that was like a startling observation. Like I could actually leverage my life and something could move in somebody else. Like, like, like I could be helpful 
It's really cool. I know it seems simplistic, but 22 years later, the idea, hey, God can use me, significant. Every time I look at that picture 22 years later, I think, hey, maybe God can still use me to help some other people as well. So what is that for you? A note from a spouse, a trinket from a city around the world, a picture of a key moment in your life. You're going to need some Ebenezer's because life gives all of us dementia. You're going you're gonna to need physical objects of the missable help of God because you will forget his faithfulness. It doesn't matter how much God has helped you up to this point. You're going to be prone to forget. All right, we're going to do a little change up to end. Um, I was talking to the staff about this. I think um, sometimes when I get to the end of sermons, I've been thinking about something, and then it's like we stand and sing, and it's like, Whoa, that was really quick. So um, we're just going to start kind of ending sermons with a couple minutes just for you to sit with what was just said. Just to think on it, reflect on it, maybe scribble a note, maybe pray. As spirit prompts, if you want to come down and pray or pray with other people, you're, you're welcome to. We're just going to kind of be still in the space. I know parents might be like, oh, gosh, my kid, my kid, right? It's okay. It's gonna be, it'll be all right. But um, want to not rush through the moment and not give you the time to kind of solidify something that the spirit is prompting from the text this morning so we're going to stand and sing great is our uh, great is thy faithfulness to remember the lord has been our help up to this point in two or three minutes um band if you guys would just kind of stay seated so we don't crazy up the room and uh let's let people sit with god for a couple minutes then i'll voice a prayer for us and then we'll sing
God, we give you praise that hitherto you've helped us. And we give you praise that that help has not come on the basis of our lovability, on the basis of our ability to get our act together. But you have been so kind to keep your commitment, your faithfulness to us. And thank you for the space that you've given us this morning to remember that help. Forgive us for having blinders to that so often. And even as we, as we close this morning by standing and singing and the community of voices and we think about what we're saying about your faithfulness, would this serve as, 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 as Ebenezer's that jar us out of forgetfulness and send us into a dementia-inducing world with reminders of your care? Would you do it so we love you more? In Jesus' name.